Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 44, Democracy under Pericles. There are very few characters throughout history who have given their names to a period of history, and the Athenian statesman Pericles is one of those select few, as this part of the 5th century BC is often called Periclean because he held such an influential role in Athens. As the radical Democrats had gradually become the dominant faction in Athenian politics, Pericles seemed willing to follow a populist policy in order to cajole the public. According to Aristotle, Pericles' stance can be explained by the fact that his principal political opponent, Cimon, was both rich and generous, and was able to gain public favor by lavishly handing out portions of his sizable personal fortune. However, Pericles' family possessed enough resources that he could have made a political mark by private means too, had he so chosen. As we mentioned in episode 40, it was his family's wealth that allowed him to get the best possible education. In addition to the military training typical of wealthy Athenians at the time, he came under the influence of two distinguished teachers. He learned music from an Athenian named Damon, who was renowned as a master in the theory of music. The other was an outlander and philosopher, Anaxagoras of Clazomenae. And because of this, Pericles became the first Athenian politician to attribute importance to philosophy. He also enjoyed the company of two other philosophers, Protagoras and Zeno. But Anaxagoras became a close friend and influenced him greatly. In fact, Pericles' manner of thought and rhetorical charisma may have been partly a product of Anaxagoras' emphasis on emotional calm in the face of trouble and skepticism about divine phenomena. His proverbial calmness and self-control are also often regarded as products of Anaxagoras' influence. For his austere aloofness, he was nicknamed the Olympian by his contemporaries. Throughout these years, Pericles endeavored to protect his privacy and to present himself as a model for his fellow citizens. Traditionally, the elite families retained their political influence by maintaining ties of friendship, called philia, and showering lavish gifts on one another. Pericles, though, rejected all forms of this sort of official friendship. For example, he would often avoid banquets and was strict in the economy of his household trying to show himself as being frugal. Instead, it seems that the main source of his power came from his tremendous ability to control the discourse, and due to his educational upbringing, he was able to grow into a powerful order, a quality that brought him tremendous success in the ecclesia as he presented his vision of politics. He turned to the people, and in that sort of situation, in the Athenian ecclesia, where you have to be able to speak powerfully and persuasively to a large group, he had no equal. In addition, he was personally incorruptible. He had a lot of family wealth, and so he didn't need to be bribed. And moreover, it seems that his ambition was more for Athens than for himself. Thucydides famously says in his estimate of Pericles that during the years of his ascendancy, Athens was in name a democracy, but in fact, they were under the rule of the first citizen. We have to be very careful here with this though. Pericles did not rule Athens. The Athenian people ruled Athens, but Pericles was extremely influential among them. 
He essentially held the beating heart of democracy in the palm of his hand, and he knew exactly which strings to pull to make the people do as he wished. After Ephialtes' assassination, Pericles continued to promote their populist social policy, and the democratic measures that he put into effect provided the basis for Athens' unassailable political strength. His reforms during the 450s BC radicalized Athenian democracy to its greatest extent. The assembly passed a series of laws that gave direct and ultimate power to the citizens through the ecclesia and the popular law courts, making decisions by means of a simple majority vote. The censorial classes did not disappear, but their power was limited. They shared the fiscal and military offices, but they did not have the power of distributing privileges. Public offices were mostly made by allotment, with elections only for a select few. The great achievements of classical Athens cannot be understood without its democratic context. With that being said, many modern scholars actually question whether Athens was a true democracy compared to modern standards, although the citizens voted directly on issues, simply because participation in it was strictly limited to adult male citizens. There, of course, were also a lot of other people in Athens who were excluded from the political process, such as women, males under the age of 20, slaves, and medics, or resident non-citizens. They made up perhaps three-quarters of the population, and so only about one-quarter was allowed any part in the running of the state. And so, it was an oddly partial democracy. Still, the Athenian system was as true of a democracy as we have seen in history, in terms of their citizens' role in the political and administrative aspects of government, and the average Athenian male citizen by far had more privileges than their typical Greek counterparts. Although Athens did not possess a president or a prime minister, positions most associated with modern executive branches, they had magistrates who formed the administration of the Athenian state. They were submitted to rigorous public control and were chosen by lot. This was a way of eliminating the personal influence of the rich and possible intrigues and uses of favors. There were only two categories of posts not chosen by lot, but by election in the ecclesia. These were the strategoi, or generals, and magistrates of finance. It was supposed that the significant qualities of skill and experience were needed to exercise each of those two offices. Both of these posts lasted a year, but in the case of the strategoi, they were eligible for re-election. It was through his repeated election to the post of strategos that Pericles shaped Athenian politics. The strategoi served as both military officers and diplomats. Although they couldn't technically give orders to anybody, except while on campaign, they usually were able to persuade the citizens in the ecclesia to follow their guidance somewhat. The leaders of military expeditions were selected by the ecclesia, who also determined the size of the force as well. Although Pericles, as strategos, served concurrently with nine other strategoi every year, none of the other generals managed to achieve as much influence as he did with the people in the ecclesia. Although he occasionally campaigned, his skills laid primarily in formulating policy and in persuading members of the ecclesia to vote his proposals into law. As a rule of thumb at this point, men who lacked military reputations did not generally become distinguished politicians. The converse tended to be true as well. 
as military heroes expected to be rewarded with promising political careers. In addition, although any man from the upper two classes of Pentacosia Medimnoi and Hippace could stand for office, the Athenians usually voted for fairly rich men from prominent families, though there were a few exceptions, most notably Themistocles. After Pericles' death, though, all of this began to change when politics and the military began to diverge as separate careers, and it became somewhat customary for a man to be just a general or just a politician. Naturally, at the same time, the government ceased to be dominated entirely by the descendants of famous clans. However, throughout Athenian history, wealth and lineage remained extremely important factors, and generals continue to involve themselves in politics more than they do today in most countries. Although the vast majority of strategoi came from the upper classes, in 458 BC, thanks to Pericles, all archonships became paid offices, and the following year, in 457 BC, he opened them up to the zugatai as well perhaps in recognition of the part played by the hoplites in the stubborn Battle of Tanagra, which had confirmed the confidence of this new democracy. We discussed this battle in episode 42. One of his most popular reforms was to allow the Thetes to occupy public office, although they were still excluded from the archonships and the higher tier of magistracies. The archons had long since lost their influence and power, but they still presided over tribunals. What the Thetes were eligible for, though, along with all other male citizens, was one of the public administration magistracies. There may have been as many as 700 official positions in classical Athens, whose duties were what today we would know as civil services. Such examples include the agoranomoi, those who looked after the agora, the metronomoi, those who inspected weights and measures, and the sitophileikis or those who were in charge of the grain supply. There were five hodopoioi, those whose duty it was to ensure that the workmen provided by the state repair the roads, and the hieropoioi, or those who were chosen to make sacrifices and be in charge of certain religious festivals. Aristotle writes that the duties of the ten astianomoi, or city commissioners, included ensuring that, quote, None of the dung collectors dump dung within two kilometers of the city wall. They also prevent the extending of houses into, and the building of balconies over, the streets, and the constructing of pipes with outfalls over the roads, and of doors opening outwards into the road. And they see to it that the girls who play the flute, the harp, and the lyre are not hired for more than two drachmas. End quote. Most offices were held, like the astunomoi, by boards of several men, all serving one-year terms. Like the archonships, these two were selected by lot. Most male citizens, by the time that they had died, had held some public office at one time or another, and a good number had held several. The Athenians felt that it was more democratic for a large number of citizens to take part in rotation in running public affairs than having long-serving experts who might use their experience and skill for their own advancement or to victimize others. And so, by diluting power in this way, Athenian voters believed that they could inhibit the growth of an identifiable class of permanent officials what we would call bureaucrats, with interests different from those of the populace at large. Aristotle records that after their year of service, and ten times during it, 
both the elected officials and those chosen by lot were subject to an audit called a thunai, in which they gave an account of their administration and use of public finances in the ecclesia. The citizens then voted on whether their conduct was satisfactory. If he was found to have been negligent or dishonest, then he would be tried in a law court. If he was found guilty, then he would be removed from office and forced to pay a fine or even exiled. This all ensured that the Athenian people were encouraged to do the job as well as they could. In the absence of a chief executive, the Athenians considered sovereignty to be vested in the people. By the time of Pericles, they had come to call their form of government a democratia, a government in which the kratos, or power, was in the hands of the demos, or the people. The heart of this Athenian democracy was the ecclesia, where the people governed themselves, without intermediaries, deciding matters of state. It was open to all male Athenian citizens, which was around 40,000 to 50,000 men at that point. It was this size that allowed democracy to work at Athens. A much larger city, like late Republican Rome, for example, would have been far too large to have all citizens involved in the political process, and thus a true democracy. Although it was possible for all Athenians to come to Athens and take part in the political process, most lived many miles outside of the city, and so only a small number, probably about an eighth, actually took part in daily political life, though, which would have been about 5,000 to 6,000 men. It was hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and often very wet, but the meetings of the Ecclesia were still a focal point for the many men of Attica who wished to play a role in determining Athens' future. Common sense would suggest that those who lived in the city center were more likely to turn up than those who lived far away, and no doubt the walk-in from distant villages discouraged some citizens, especially on rainy days. Nonetheless, it seems that people did take the trouble to make the trip when vital matters, such as ostracism and whether to go to war, were slated for discussion. But the principle remained— all Athenian citizens had the right to speak and vote at the meetings of the Ecclesia, the body which held the supreme power in the state. Those who attend it might have been lifelong advocates of certain policies and could very well have been followers of a popular politician, but they were not members of political parties as we know them today. In fact, there was no such thing in Athens, and classical Greek lacks a word for a political party. Writers would use expressions like, those are X's people, to identify political factions, though. Obviously, various groups, the farmers, the sailors, or shopkeepers, for example, might join together to support a particular proposal, but these groupings changed from meeting to meeting. The only way to exercise political power was by convincing a majority of your fellow citizens that your proposals were the best for the state. So to stay a leader, you needed to be a skillful orator and had to continue to win the approval of the ecclesia, meeting after meeting. It must have been a very tiresome business, to say the least. Meetings of the ecclesia took place outside on the Peninx Hill, which is the hill directly facing across from the Acropolis. In the early decades of the 5th century BC, the ecclesia met only about a dozen times a year, but the number of meetings soon expanded, and by Pericles' time, Ten days would have rarely passed by without there being at least one meeting. 
In fact, the ecclesia had 40 fixed meetings a year, either three or four a month, and special ones were added if necessary in order to approve treaties, declare war, choose the generals to campaign, elect officials, and so forth. When a meeting of the ecclesia was due, a group of Scythian slaves, under the control of the state, used a long rope covered with red chalk to round the people up. They started from the north end of the Agora and drove the citizens towards the Peninx Hill. Any eligible citizen found outside the meeting of the Ecclesia, with red marks on their clothes, were fined, meaning that everyone able was expected to participate. It was their civic duty to attend these meetings and not just hang out idly in the Agora. All those who attended the meetings of the Ecclesia, minus the Pyrtanes, sat on the ground while the speaker stood on a low platform. Once the proposals were read aloud by the Pyrtanes, the Ecclesia would then have a debate on their merit. The Strategoi had the privilege of speaking first, in order of age. Likewise, among the rest of the citizen body, those over the age of 50 would speak next, followed by the younger men. Some people spoke extemporaneously, others brought notes or even a text. Speakers had to be prepared for their remarks to be interrupted periodically by laughter, applause, or heckling of various sorts. In Aristophanes' Acarnians, we see that someone asked the Ecclesia who would like to speak, and any citizen had the option of doing so. In essence, they had equality of speech in that a poor person had the same rights as that of a rich person in the Ecclesia. Still, though, we can assume that the amount of the Athenians who chose to participate varied widely. Some probably never spoke. Some spoke occasionally. A hardcore of engaged citizens probably spoke frequently, and no doubt there were a few who seemed to speak incessantly. Then, as in now, we can assume that most Athenians were reluctant to speak aloud, though, because they were afraid to be heckled and told they were stupid or insert your favorite slur of choice here. Also, meetings were not quiet matters. For instance, Dicaeopolis and Aristophanes' Acarnians needs to shout to be heard. So these informal deterrents sharply limited the number of speakers. But there also was a formal device. At some point during the career of Pericles, the Athenians introduced the, the Graphi Paranomo, which had the effect of making the citizens in the assembly the guardians of the constitution. Any citizen could object to a proposal by asserting that it contradicted an existing law, and it immediately was suspended. The proposer was then taken to court, and if the jury decided against him, his proposal was disallowed and he was fined. If a person was fined three times for this offense, then he was deprived of his citizenship rights. Naturally, though, this also became a weapon to be used against one's political opponent. If someone put something forth that he didn't like, he could bring a case against him in the law courts under the guise of an unconstitutional proposal or some other trumped-up charge. Anyways, these sessions of the Ecclesia sometimes lasted from dawn until dusk, but they usually ended in the early afternoon, when everyone who wished had their chance to speak and the debate was concluded. A vote was put forth in the form of a simple majority by the raising of the hands. This type of involvement was direct and immediate. Even if you didn't speak, you were hardly a spectator. If you and your fellow citizens had voted in favor of going to war, for example, you were voting to send yourself or your son or nephew as a rower or a hoplite. Voting in the Athenian democracy was rather personal, and thus it held importance. 
The 50 Pertanis, or those members of the Boule whose turn it was to be in charge for the month, or a tenth of the year, had the sole privilege of calling a meeting of the Ecclesia, though sometimes they did so at the behest of the Strategoi. Theoretically, no motion could be put forth at the Ecclesia that had not been drafted by the Boule and posted at least five days before the day of the meeting. But this restriction did not mean that only Boule members could frame legislation. Sometimes the Boulet's motion was deliberately written in such vague terms that it was meant to be framed at the meeting in the Ecclesia. Frequently, amendments would revise an original motion beyond recognition. Furthermore, most of those who wished to put motions forth could have suggested them to some neighbor, family member, or a friend of a friend who happened to be serving on the Boulet. As we mentioned, meetings of the Ecclesia normally met three or four times a month. Government business, though, required regular attention, and this continuity was provided by the Boule. And so the Ecclesia didn't work without the Boule, whose 500 members, 50 chosen by lot from each of the 10 tribes, functioned as an extension of the Ecclesia. They held office for a year, and nobody was allowed to serve on it more than twice. Black and white beans were put in a box, and depending on which color the person drew out, they would obtain the post or not. Because of this, they were often called counselors of the bean. During their pertani, or period as the standing committee, the 50 pertanis lived in the tholos and were fed at public expense. This enabled them to fulfill their duties and ensure that all state business came to them first. Their responsibilities were many. In addition to preparing the legislation and agenda for the Ecclesia, as we previously mentioned, they also supervised the magistrates and saw to it that daily administrative details were on the right path. They were in overall charge of the triremes, dockyards, and cavalry horses. They scrutinized the candidates for coming elections. Aristotle writes that they cooperate with the other magistrates in most of what they do. Essentially, the members of the Boule inevitably developed a considerable understanding of the problems of running a polis. Each day, one member became chairman of the Pertani. He was in charge of the keys to the treasuries and the official seal of Athens. If there was a meeting of the whole Boule, or of the Ecclesia on his day, he acted as chairman of that meeting too. The 50 Pertanis also attended the meetings at the Penix Hill and sat on grandstands carved into the rock. They had stone platforms, which they reached by means of a small staircase of three steps. On the first platform were the secretaries and scribes. As we mentioned previously, the orator and the ecclesia would climb up onto the central platform, just above the Pertanis. The law was an essential part of Athenian democracy, and they went to great length to keep their law above corruption. Their main law court was the Heliaii which may have sat in the southwestern corner of the Agora. The Heliaii heard all cases other than those concerning treason and murder. Those cases were tried in the Ecclesia. Similarly, the Athenians believed that trial by jury allowed them to best protect their democracy from corruption. The Athenian judicial system centered on a panel of 6,000 dicasti, or jurors, citizens over 30 years old who enlisted to serve in the dicasteria, or law courts, each year. Initially, only the rich or the elderly could afford to be a juror, since only they didn't work for a living or could afford to take the day off of work and still survive. However, two obol pay was introduced by Pericles that allowed more to participate 
sometime around 454 BC. This was increased in the 420s BC to three obols, or half of a drachma, probably at the behest of Cleon. It was called the misthophoria, which literally means paid function. It was a small amount, less than a day's wages for an average laborer, which was one drachma, or six obols, but it was not trivial, and so all citizens were able to dedicate themselves to public service every now and then, without facing financial hardship. No doubt this bolstered Pericles' popularity in the polis. With this system, Pericles succeeded in keeping the courts full of jurors and in giving the people experience in public life. In fact, it has been estimated that the courts were in session between 175 to 225 days a year. Naturally, then, the Athenians were a notoriously litigious people. An example of this can be found in Aristophanes' The Wasps. In the play, Xanthius, in regards to his master Philocleon, says, quote, I'll tell you what disease the old master has. He is a law court lover, no man like him. Judging is what he dotes on, and he weeps if he can't sit on the front bench. He doesn't get a wink of sleep at night. But if he does actually doze off for just a moment, his mind still flies through the night to the water clock. Straight after supper, he shouts for his shoes, and then off he goes to the court in the early hours and sleeps there, clinging to the column like a limpet. And because he's afraid that someday he may run short of voting pebbles, he keeps a whole beach in his house. That's how mad he is. End quote. It should be noted that Philocleon literally means Cleon lover, and in the play, Philocleon's son is named Bedeli Cleon, which literally means Cleon hater. Aristophanes often makes prominent Athenians of his time the butt of his jokes. In particular, Aristophanes was not a fan of Cleon, and went after the demagogue personally on multiple occasions. Cleon even prosecuted Aristophanes for slandering the city of Athens, though he was acquitted. There will be more on this in a future episode. Anyways, while Aristophanes' comedic plays will be discussed a lot in giving us information on how the democracy worked, we must keep in mind, too, that Aristophanes was a comedian, and no doubt used some level of distortion. On the other hand, though, there has to be some grain of truth in what he says, for the joke to have been funny to his Athenian audience. For example, like the fact that the law courts were full of a whole lot of old men. Regardless, we can tell by looking at his plays that participation in the law courts were something that the Athenian people loved to do, and they took great pride in performing this civic duty. On any given day, the jurors who showed up to accept an assignment were assigned to specific courts and to specific cases. The usual size of a jury seems to have been 201 or 501, although there were juries as small as 51 to as many as 1501, depending on the case whether it was public or private, and its importance. An odd number of jurors was implemented in order to avoid a tie. The large size of Athenian juries facilitated the legal fiction that a decision of a jury was a decision of the demos, and consequently, there could be no appeal from a verdict in an Athenian courtroom. In Aristophanes' The Clouds, a lively comedy whose depiction of Socrates contributed substantially to the hostility against the philosopher, one of Socrates' pupils points out Athens on a map to the crotchety Strepsiades, but he isn't persuaded and asks, quote, What's that you're saying? I'm not convinced, since I don't see any courts in session. End quote. The participation of large numbers of citizens in the judicial system was considered to be a hallmark of Athenian democracy, 
an enormous trouble was taken to avoid influence or the possibility of bribery. In addition to the size of juries being very large, which in itself reduced the amount of influence any one juror had, they also didn't choose jurors from the 6,000 dicasti enrolled each year for the cases to be heard that particular day until the morning of. Aristotle also describes a very elaborate system so that no one could predict which juror would go to which court. The purpose behind this was to prevent people who were being tried to know who the jurors were in advance and thereby bribe them to affect the outcome. At the time that you might be called, you'd come down to the agora and on a small rectangular bronze token called a panachion, you would write your name, your father's name, and your deem. They had an incredibly complicated system whereby all of the bronze tokens were placed into a device called the claritarion. This allotment machine was a slab of stone incised with 10 vertical rows of slots, one for each Athenian deem, and with an attached tube on the top, like a funnel, and into this were put little black or white balls. On the bottom, there was a crank, and when it was turned, one black or white ball would fall out. Going row by row horizontally, if a white ball pops out, those are selected to serve on the jury. Those who received a black ball were not selected. And this is from where we get our phrase blackballed, meaning to exclude someone from something for a specific reason. This method of allotment ensured that nobody would know who would be selected beforehand, and that every single deem would be represented in the jury. We actually have found a fragment of this machine, now housed in the Athenian Agora Museum. Athenian legal procedure had no public prosecutor, state's attorney, or lawyers at all. Complaints, whether civil or criminal, and public or private, were registered and argued by private citizens. With no counsel, both the plaintiff and the defendant had to make their own speeches. However, if they were wealthy enough, and this is where it becomes less egalitarian, they were free to hire a speechwriter to help them prepare their case, and that profession would flourish in Athens in the 4th century BC. Indeed, most of our knowledge of Athenian law comes from surviving speeches of this sort. Furthermore, there was no judge, and so the jury was everything. From the Athenian point of view, a judge would give too much weight to learning and to expertise, and would also create the danger of corruption and undemocratic prejudice. So it was up to the contestants in the case to cite the relevant laws and precedents, and it was up to the jurors to decide between the plaintiff and the defendant. Instead of a judge, they did have a magistrate, whose job was simply to ensure that the proceedings were conducted in an orderly fashion. In the courtroom, the plaintiff and the defendant each had an opportunity to present his case, to rebut his opponent, to cite what was thought to be the relevant law, to produce witnesses, and then to sum up his case. From the preserved speeches, we see that they often made use of arguments, which were irrelevant to the case. The character and civic reputations of the defendants and plaintiffs were relevant, and jurors were expected to hear about a man's background and his conduct as a citizen as part of the information necessary to discover where the truth lies. Witnesses were limited in who they could be, though. They could not be disenfranchised citizens, women, or children. Slaves were allowed to be present, but not allowed to speak, but their evidence was acceptable if it was presented in written form and produced under torture, presumably because they believed that slaves would only tell the unbiased truth under the threat of death. Unlike modern trials, however, there were no cross-examinations of witnesses. 
Each phase in the case was limited to a specific amount of time, kept by an official using a clepsydra, or water clock, and no trial lasted longer than a day. The way the clepsydra worked is that there were two buckets, aligned vertically, and the one on the top was filled with a certain amount of water, depending on the phase. A small spout on the bottom drained the water into the empty bucket below. When all of the water was drained, that phase of the trial ended. In Aristophanes' The Wasps, an improvised court is set up and instead of buckets for the water clock, they use a chamber pot, no doubt poking fun at this method of timekeeping. As an aside, there was a much larger, more permanent water clock that was set up in the Agora in order to mark the time of day. Not much of it is left today, though it is still visible, but it seems to have operated with the same principles. A big tank was filled at the beginning of each day, and water would drain out as the day progressed. We believe it would have taken about 17 hours to drain out, and there would have been some sort of a float on it to mark its level, meaning the current time of day that it was. Finally, when all phases had been completed, the case went to the jury. They weren't given any guidance about precedents used in similar cases in the past, no indication of any relevant laws, and no advice on how to evaluate or reject the evidence that had been presented, as in the modern trial. Furthermore, they didn't get together to deliberate either, but instead voted individually and a simple majority decided the issue. Jurors voted by dropping either a white shell for innocent or black shell for guilty into a clay jar. The obvious drawback was that this method showed everybody present who the juror voted for. This was corrected in the 4th century BC. At that point, the shells were replaced by a cylinder made out of bronze, which was either solid for innocent or hollow for guilty. If the verdict was guilty and there was no fixed penalty for the committed offense, then the plaintiff proposed a penalty and the defendant then had the opportunity to propose a different penalty. The jury then voted to choose one or the other, which usually forced both sides to suggest moderate penalties anyway. One was usually fined for minor offenses, but for the more major ones, he could have his property confiscated, be confined in the prisons, lose his civic rights, or be exiled. Long-term imprisonment was not usually imposed, though. Death was reserved for first-degree murder and was usually administered by means of poisoning, with hemlock, stoning, or beheading. Since this judicial system made its people litigious, they built in an element meant to reduce the degree of frivolous and malevolent accusations. If the plaintiff did not win a stated percentage of jurors' votes, then he was required to pay considerable fine to the state in public prosecutions and to the defendant in private ones. Two other surprising features of Athenian law arise from the fact that there was no police force. Some Scythian slaves were employed by the polis to keep order at meetings of the ecclesia and to sweep idle citizens from the agora to the Penix Hill, as we previously mentioned, but there was no police force as we know it. Therefore, there was no official prosecution of criminals, and so all cases had to be brought by private individuals. This was perhaps real democracy, where the responsibility to check crime rests on everybody. But it also means that there was no way of ensuring that victory in the courts led you to getting your stolen property back, or your damages paid, for example. You could only threaten another prosecution, or use some form of violent persuasion. 
And so it seems that this led to an abuse of the system and encouraged the emergence of an unpleasant crowd of informers who made a profession of sniffing out breaches of law and blackmailing those concerned. We hear about these people, called the sycophanti, literally the sycophants, who tried to get wealthy a rather dishonorable way. Aristophanes wrote an entire play called Plutos, or Wealth, just to satirize these sycophants who indulged in the law courts in order to gain their income. In addition, this Athenian system of justice had many other flaws. While modern governments try to separate law and politics, the Greeks, as well as the Romans, did not. The result was, as Aristotle says, that, quote, when people have the right to vote in the courts, they control the constitution, end quote. And so, decisions could be quirky and unpredictable since they were unchecked by precedent. Juries could be prejudiced, and the jurors had no defense except their own intelligence. Speeches were unhampered by rules of evidence and relevance, and without the discipline imposed by judges, they could be fanciful, false, and sophistical. For example, Lysias, at the end of the 5th century BC, was asked to write a speech. So he did, and the guy he wrote it for loved it. But once he read it again, he realized its flaws and complained to Lysias, who told him to calm down, because the jury too will only hear it once, like he did. And so as you can see, juries could be too easily swayed by persuasive speakers who used irrelevant points of argument. Furthermore, there was no cross-examination of witnesses to prove that what they were testifying to was false. Through its many flaws, though, the Athenian judicial system was very democratic in that no matter a person's wealth, one legally had the same shake at things as everyone else. Due to the size and the randomness of their jury selection, it was hard to bribe or intimidate a jury to sway the outcome. You were also tried by your peers, because the courts and the people were one and the same. The trials were simple, speedy and open. Penalties were moderate, and there was deterrence on unreasonable lawsuits. It placed no barriers of legal technicalities or legal experts between the citizens and their laws, counting, as always, on the common sense of the ordinary Athenian. Finally, no higher court existed to overrule their decisions, and there was no appeal from their verdicts. As the trial-happy juror boasts in Aristophanes' comic play about the Athenian judicial system, the Wasps, quote, Our power in court is no less than royal. End quote. Athenian democracy received harsh criticism by its contemporaries. Their political use of the courts caused one critic of democracy to say that, quote, In the law courts, the Athenians are more concerned with self-interest rather than justice. They use the courts to protect members of the demos and to ruin their opponents. End quote. And so we can see that oftentimes the Athenian people were swayed by their own political opinions and by the eloquence of the pleaders working upon their emotions. Ancient writers, though, directed most of their attacks against the idea of government by mass meeting and the selection of public officials by allotment. When addressing the Spartans, Alcibiades called democracy an acknowledged foolishness. Plato makes the same point when he has Socrates say that if someone without expert qualifications tries to give advice in such things, they refuse to listen to him and cause a ruckus until he gets off the stage. But when the discussion is about affairs of state, anyone can get up to speak, and nobody rebukes him as they did in the earlier case. 
Socrates, of course, was poking fun at the fact that only a few public officials were elected, while the vast majority were chosen by lot. However, the Athenian people would have been far less incompetent than was generally assumed by their contemporaries. If each Athenian attended only half of the minimum sessions held each year in the ecclesia, he would hear debates by the ablest people in the state and gain much experience and knowledge. Also, every year, 500 Athenians served on the boule, where they gained experience in the management of Athenian affairs and produced bills for debates in the ecclesia. And so the Athenian debates weren't attended by those who lacked experience or an understanding of government. There also was a lot of criticism of popular Athenian leaders called demagogues by contemporary writers. One of them in particular, Cleon, who became the leading politician in Athens after Pericles' death, always gets a bad press. Plutarch attacks him for his vulgarity, saying, quote, He was offensive and conceited. It was thanks to him that decent behavior was no longer seen at meetings of the ecclesia, for he was the first demagogue to bellow his speeches, to throw open his cloak and slap his thigh, and to stride up and down on the platform while haranguing the people. End quote. Furthermore, Aristophanes' play The Knights is a savage ridiculing of him. He says that Cleon is the, quote, filthiest, most blatant, lowest down liar of all time. He sucks up, warms, and soft soaps the ecclesia until he has it where he wants it. He's the tax extorter, the bottomless pit, the charybdis of rapacity, who helps himself to public money, who has a squad of muscle men, tough young leather sellers, and the rest of the demagogues are of the same sort. It's no use thinking decent or educated men can be leaders of the people. That's left to the illiterate and dishonest these days. End quote. It's very clear that Aristophanes did not like demagogues. Although this is comedy, it still shows one weakness of democracy. Athenian democracy is said by later historians to be inherently unstable, inviting faction and class warfare and carelessness of the rights of property for the rule of the poor over the rich minority. However, it was not thwarted by the complexities of representative government or by checks and balances. They only had to walk up to the Penix Hill on a day of the meeting of the Ecclesia, make speeches, and vote in order to bring about the most radical social and economic changes. If they had wanted to, they could have abolished debt, which presumably would be something the poor would favor. They could have instituted excessive taxation of the rich to the advantage of the poor. Nothing would have stopped them from doing all of these things, but they never did it. Although they had political equality before the law, which was a fundamental principle of democracy, economic equality had no place in the Athens of Pericles. On the contrary, the democracy he led defended the right of private property and made no effort to change its unequal distributions. The oath taken by jurors each time that they sat on a jury included the following clause, quote, I will not allow private debts to be canceled, nor lands or houses belonging to Athenian citizens to be redistributed, end quote. In addition, the chief magistrate each year swore that whatever anyone owns before he entered office, he will have and hold the same until he left it. The Athenians' respect for property and their refusal to insist on economic equality goes a long way towards explaining why their democracy was so peaceful, so stable, and so durable. 
The majority of the Athenians were moderate because of the relatively broad distribution of property in 5th century BC Athens. That is compared to oligarchic polis, although it was by no means equal, because there was always a group of fabulously wealthy citizens, and the majority of Athenian citizens were not rich enough to be hoplites. So it's not as though there weren't a lot of poor people in the state. These people were the very men who rode the ships that brought Athens wealth and power and glory. And furthermore, the last 50 years of the 5th century BC was filled with war, plague, impoverishment, and defeat. Yet neither during nor after the war did the Athenian masses interfere in any way with private property or seek economic leveling in the two ways that revolutionaries always wanted it, by canceling debts or redistributing land. The Athenian citizens demanded only equality before the law. This is the key principle to understand when thinking about Athenian democracy. Also, although the Athenians valued wealth and material goods, they regarded economic life and status as less noble and less important than participation and distinction in public service to the polis. In time, though, the Athenians were paid for serving on the boule and even for attending the ecclesia. Furthermore, the magistrates were also paid for their time. As elsewhere in Greece, voters gained some free time as a consequence of the labor done by women and slaves, but even a citizen with a wife and a couple of slaves generally had to work hard to survive, and the sums these men received for participating in government made a huge difference. Today, it seems natural to compensate people for the time spent serving the community, and state pay for state service is now the norm. But many Athenians, mostly affluent men who could afford to serve without remuneration, viewed this system as a discreditable attempt on the part of democratic politicians to buy popularity and votes. In the aristocratic value system of the time, it was seen as acceptable for Chimon to court popularity by inviting passerbys to pick fruit for themselves from his orchards and by holding banquets for the people at his home, for example but it was seen as manipulative and underhanded by Pericles to introduce these measures providing for compensation to those who serve the state. In addition to being eligible for re-election, there was one other way in which the generalship was different from all other state duties. It was not paid. Because mainly rich men, like Pericles, who had access to the education required to handle this top job and had the free time to fill it, meaning they didn't have to work for a living, were the ones who won elections for the strategia. They were compensated by the prestige their office carried and any war booty gained. However, the strategia was the exception and all other public offices received some sort of financial stipend. And this is the second of the principles the Athenians thought were essential for democracy. It was not enough to make the vast majority of public appointments open to every citizen. It also had to be possible for a man to do them without losing his earnings. Otherwise, only the wealthy would be willing to undertake them. It was easy for the enemies of democracy to sneer at this distribution of money, as they called it, whereby the people became extravagant and undisciplined instead of restrained and self-sufficient. But it was necessary if Athens was going to be a true democracy. As well as payment to official positions and jury members in Athens, the state also paid citizens, participating on most military and naval duties, and officials employed on state business abroad. But the pay was small, hardly more than a subsistence wage. It was certainly only about half that which a skilled workman could make in a day. There were other people who were helped or maintained at state expense as well. 
For example, war casualties who were unable to work, orphans of men killed in war, victors at the major athletics, anyone whose property was less than three minai, and anyone who was incapable of working because of physical disability. The economic resources of Attica were not much, so the money for all of this came from the contributions paid by their Delian League allies, from taxes paid by the Metoikoi, or resident foreigners, and from customs due on exports and imports. And since this trading was largely in the hands of non-Athenians, it was still seen that citizens did not tax themselves. However, in times of war, a special tax, called Isphora, was levied on its richer citizens. Despite a variety of constitutional reforms and creative innovations designed to maximize popular participation in civic life, rich Athenians continued to enjoy substantial prestige. Democratic politicians cleverly harnessed the wealth of the elite into the service of the state by establishing a network of public services, known as liturgies, a word we now restrict to a set form of religious worship. Essentially, these liturgies compensated to a certain extent for the lack of any regular income or property taxes, which had been set up during the tyranny of Pisistratus and abolished with the democracy. Even though these politicians themselves belonged to the elite and hence were creating a system that would oblige them to spend their own money, they considered these liturgies to be good investments in public relations, both for themselves and for democratic principles. Liturgies included major outlays, such as maintaining a trireme and training its crew, the liturgy known as the triarchy, although the state supplied the hall and paid the crew. But the duty and expense of fitting the trireme, launching it complete, and training the oarsmen fell to the wealthiest Athenian citizens. The triarch, who sailed with the ship, was responsible for the good repair of the trireme at the end of the period of his office. Each trireme usually had 170 oarsmen, composed of the poorest class of citizens, as well as a crew of 20 men to manage the vessel, which included the kelustes, who set the pace for the oarsmen to row, and there were also 10 epibatai, or marines, for a total of 200 men per trireme. In addition to dozens of triarchies, about 100 civilian liturgies were performed each year. Others included the leading and financing of a delegation to a religious festival in another Greek polis, the paying and training of a team of runners for the intertribal torch races at festivals within Athens, and the offering of a banquet to all members of one's tribe on the occasion of a religious festival. While the triarchy was the costliest and honorable liturgy, none of the others were as more characteristic of classical Athens than that of the Choragia. One Choragos was named from each tribe every year, and his duties were to provide the training of the choruses who performed at Attic festivals in honor of Athena or Dionysus. The 15 members of a tragic chorus, the 24 members of a comedic chorus, and the 50 members of a chorus that would recite the verses known as dithrams, all needed to be selected, paid, and trained. Often, the rehearsal period extended for months. In addition, scenery, props, and special effects needed to be funded. The citizen who performed any one of these liturgies might or might not know anything about sailing, running, or poetry. Often he provided the funds and delegated the work to skilled experts. Everyone profited from this system. 
Those who lacked the means to offer such services benefited from the generosity of those who provided them, and the rich would garner tremendous prestige, while simultaneously performing vital military, cultural, religious, and civic functions for the community. This worked like a kind of super tax on the rich, though at least it must have given the rich citizens somewhat more satisfaction than their modern counterparts get from sending a check to the tax collector. Furthermore, not only could he be proud of his elegantly completed trireme or the magnificence of the costumes in his play, but a competitive element also fostered excellence, because prizes at these contests went to the victorious Karegoi as well as to the successful poet and so forth. Therefore, rich Athenians engaged in competitive donating in order to one-up their rivals. Such victories carried prestige for the Koregos, and these honors could be an important stepping stone to a successful political career for a wealthy young Athenian. Conversely, failure to successfully execute one's role as a Koregos could lead to social humiliation. Like Cleisthenes before him, Pericles was a man of privilege who became the most influential leader in Athens by devising innovations to strengthen the egalitarian tendencies of Athenian democracy, a form of government that rested on the belief that the cumulative political wisdom of the majority would outweigh the eccentricity and irresponsibility of the few. Now that we have described the political and military situation, at roughly around the middle of the 5th century BC, We shall stop our chronological approach for a bit and take what will be a rather exhaustive cultural, economic, and social tour of Greece at this point. I say Greece, but in reality, it will be very Athenocentric, as Athens was the center of the Greek world at that point and was the focal point for most of our sources. In nearly every respect, we know more about life in the bustling city of Athens than we do about how people lived in the other Greek polis. But energy and talent were dispersed widely throughout the Greek world, and much of it went into literature and the arts. The word most commonly attached to the art and literature of the early 5th century BC is grandeur. During this era of transition, talented poets, painters, architects, and sculptors carried the traditions of the 6th century BC throughout the wider Greek world, while in Athens, the defeat of Persia was marked by innovations in tragic drama, so striking as to constitute a new art form. First up on this cultural tour will be poetry, and we will continue where we left off in episode 19 by looking at the lives and works of some of the illustrious poets of the 5th century BC, those being Simonides, Bacchylides, and Pindar. In addition, we will take a look at the musical instruments that accompanied these poems. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, episode 45, Music and Victory Odes. Thank you.